if people actually look at where we've come relative to where we are, it's pretty obvious that we're living in this great, amazing time. Um, and even if you just zoom down on our company, right, this idea that we're democratizing the opportunity to get in the wine industry, when have uh, you ever had a, a fair market in the wine industry? Um, and that's just one example of free markets uh, finally starting to come into play, decentralization coming into play. Still, welcome to the American Optimists. I'm really excited to be here in the heart of Napa Valley with my good friend Jake Cloberdance today. Jake, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joe. Um, love the American Optimist. I'm an American Optimist with you. So. You are. You are an optimist. Well, we're, we're here. We're here in one of the most beautiful parts of Napa. We just finished this awesome winery at One Hope. It, it took. Uh, you've been working on that for six years or so to get this winery up and running. That's right. We uh, started the home in 2016 and uh, finished it in 2018 and broke ground on the winery in 2018 and just finished it at the end of the year in 2020. And, and this, this, this area is pretty cool. We're near some of our favorite places like Staglin and Opus One. And, and what, 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 what appeals to you about this part of Napa? Well, uh, we're amongst the greatest wine families to ever make wine, not only in Napa, but really at a global scale. And so um, right in the heart of it, uh, about halfway through the 30-mile corridor that makes up the Napa Valley. Um, and if you want to be one of the best and one of the greatest of your generation, there's no better way to do it than to um, put yourself alongside the the best who've done it before you. So, so, so J- Jake and I are childhood friends. We played Little League Baseball together. Jake went on to be a Cal football and rugby player. I did not go on to be a college athlete, but uh, we're still we're still somewhat competitive. And, and, and Jake, what, One Hope Wine, which you started 14 years ago now, it's uh, it's a it's a for profit wine company, but it gives a lot of its profits to charity and helps charitable causes. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we, uh, our purpose is to nourish the future. We serve it every day by sharing wine and giving hope. And um, yeah, getting to go to um, school around here and some of the greatest things I learned were um, through sports. Uh, and uh, you know, we we started as as young men or young boys learning teamwork there and um, and learning a few other uh, great tips and and things along the way that made us better leaders i think but uh it was really at cal rugby that that competitive nature started to take over to the next level so cal cal rugby you you guys won the nationals there a little bit we did we won a couple national championships and you know the things i i learned there that were a little different than our high school because you and i both know we were big fish in a small pond as athletes at our school we were more of an academic school mission san jose high school is very good at (laughs) academics we were top in math and chess yeah and uh and pretty good at badminton too if i recall (laughs) a lot of asian kids there (laughs) there were and uh and so you know when i went to berkeley um it was my first time really uh joining a championship organization i came in we had won 12 national championships in a row um, which was a college record. Um, only like North Carolina women's soccer team had done that um, previously. And uh, I, of course, broke the streak when I came along. Uh, we we lost in the semifinals, um, but we came back. Uh, we lost to Air Force, who was a great athletic team, and they beat us up that year. But we came back the next day, and we beat Army 70-3. to And I think um, that speaks to some of the stuff that I, I learned there. Our standard was always 
our own standard. It wasn't about how we performed necessarily against other teams because we'd usually crush all of them. But then you won. But then you won. Then you won the nationals the next year. Then we won uh, three more years in a row national championships, and so that level of resilience. Um, one of the things Jack Clark's one of the greatest coaches of all time in any sport uh, in college, but particularly in rugby, is the greatest in the history of, uh, of the U S at least. And, um, one of the things he'd always talk about was, uh, mental toughness and the ability to make the next best play under any circumstance. Even if you just got punched in the face, do whatever the next best play was for your team. And that was never punching someone back in the face and getting a red card. It was about making that next play and being present. And, uh, and, uh, he also, you know, the values that everybody on the team had to, uh, live up to, there were, there were values that were must on the team and so um i remember him cutting our captain my my first year playing there he was our star player our best player and um and uh he carried that over and he he committed to it because he broke some of the team rules that were musts you know so. he, he broke the rules so he got cut but is that why you lost the nationals how, uh, how's that how's that work uh i i i take that back he he actually it was my it was my second year there and we did win the nationals won, the year before the year. he was our captain too. And we lost them with him. And so that, that was the learning. Experience. So even yeah. so that's an interesting example for you, even the top talent needs to be cut if they're not following the values of what you're doing. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, and you know, we, we with, did, we did, we did that at Palantir too early on. There was someone who was really, really bright, but they weren't really someone who was a team player in the right way and they weren't respecting the engineers in the right way. So we, they couldn't fit into the culture. Yeah. Brilliant jerks are hard to work with for uh, too long. And um, I think uh, that was the first time I had seen it really um, put into work, like someone following what they said they were going to do. It really changes the culture when you see that happen. That's right. And then uh, and then one of the themes was entitled to nothing and grateful for everything. And uh, I think um, that level of of not ever feeling entitled uh, to anything um, created a sense of rigor and work ethic. And we talked a lot about mental toughness and work ethic, being able to make up for, um, you know, mistakes along the way, as long as you were learning and your rate of learning was going up. And I think all those carried over to my career and my ability to be a better leader. So, so, so you've been a leader now for 14 years of One Hope. How many bottles of wine is One Hope going to sell this year? What's the, what's the current pace you're we're on? Gonna, we're going to sell over two and a half million bottles. Two and a half million bottles of wine. Months, yeah. That has to make you one of the top 50 or so for, for we're definitely country. in the top 100 by volume out of over 11,000 now. And uh, the top 50, the top 63 is a half a million cases. So we have our eyes on doing that by 2024. Okay. And okay. Uh, so, so breaking the top, you're breaking the top 50 in a couple of years. Yep. That's right. And uh, that's a good pace you're on because a lot of those companies have been around for, for, for decades. Yeah. And we'll be the largest direct to consumer wine brand in the U.S. in the next couple of years too. So that, that'll put us there because it's very rare to be that size and be doing 90% of your business direct to consumer. So that's the unique part. Uh, all the other 63 do the majority of that through restaurants and hotels and stuff like that. So there's a lot of pessimism around business in our country from a lot of people right now. They think business means taking advantage of people. They think you only really get rich by doing the wrong things. You're obviously dedicated to doing the right thing. So what kind of impact has one had to date and, and, and how do you think about business and positive impact? Yeah, um, we're just coming up on uh, $8 million donated. So we're over $7 million right now. Donated, donated to what? Donated to um, a, a handful of categories, hunger, water, health, and education, things that help people break the cycle of poverty. Um, but then we also donate to um, causes of choice for hosts all around the country. So um, our goal is to democratize the Napa Valley wine tasting experience, give people an even playing field to be able to compete and build a wine business because it's almost nobody who doesn't 
inherit a wine business or isn't one of the big conglomerates um, is ever able to break into the wine business. And so um, they, are, that, they, they always tell me a good way to make a million dollars in wine is to start with, with tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the age old adage. It made it a pretty hard uh, company to get uh, capitalized along the way because uh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And um, frankly, it's a very capital intensive business. And that's true for most uh, wine businesses because they work within the traditional confines of the wine industry. They're trying to do it for fun and they're trying to do what's called three-tier distribution, right? So most of the time if you're selling wine, you're selling it to distributors, to retailers, to consumers, or distributors to restaurants and consumers. Yep. And that's if you're lucky. Sometimes there's a broker or another broker or two in between. there's another tier as well. Yeah. So if if you're looking at international wines, a lot of times there's an international broker to a distributor, to a retailer, to the end consumer. And then in Texas, they have the four-tier system. So there is uh, one more layer in between. So there's some cronyism I'm going to have to go fix in Texas is what you're telling me. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think that we're doing it. I think you're doing it with us uh, through One Hope is, um, you know, you're, you're kind of disrupting that and um, e-commerce and the ability to communicate um, directly with your end consumer and ship right to their doorstep has changed and the game. And you said you're empowering cause entrepreneurs around the country. So you have a lot of people, I guess, mostly women around the country, hosting events, teaching people about the wine, teaching people about charity. How, how many how many people now are selling wine around the country for? Over 10,000 and uh, 99% of them are women and over half of them are moms. Um, usually the alcohol industry has been very male dominated and a lot of older men at that. And so um, we're very differentiated in that regard. We like the idea of putting money in the pockets of moms instead of um, the, the average uh, old guard uh, liquor distributors and stuff like that. And um, that is part of our purpose alongside the you know eight million dollars donated also giving people a platform to bring people together around wine and raise more so this is moms bringing their communities and their friends and teaching them about wine and usually they're raising also for a charity they care about while they're doing it that's right so we'll have hosts who raise money for their kids school or for their breast cancer walk or something that's important to them it can be local or global we've donated over 20,000 nonprofits through that part so we donate for every bottle um, towards uh, these larger global causes of hunger water health and education but then we also give our hosts the opportunity to hold a wine party and donate an additional 10% towards their cause of choice. And we let them choose from our database and all their uh, event orders go through um, their event link and it automatically cuts it. And some of them will donate a lot. Some of them may donate less and keep more for themselves depending what they're doing. Um, Everybody donates 10% and then they get another 10% rewards and they can choose to donate that or keep it for themselves. If they need it economically. So let's let's back up. So you have this this giant wine company. It's growing really fast. It's doing really well. We have this beautiful product. Property. Let's go back 14 years. You started off by selling wine out of the trunk of your car, I believe. That's right. Um, we started with 168 cases, three pallets. Um, we did it custom crush over the hills, right over the hills here, uh, over the Mayacamas in a uh, Sonoma. Um, and we made three pallets of wine. I drove it in a U-Haul truck over the grapevine down to LA where I was living at the time. We loaded up in a public storage unit and a handful of people. Was it a refrigerator public storage unit? It, it actually wasn't, but it. <laughs> Is that a good idea for wine to keep <laughs> it, it? It wasn't the un- best storage space, no. But uh, we sold it pretty quickly. But um, yeah, we've come a long way since that public storage unit. There's no doubt. It was pretty reasonable. It's towards the middle of the storage unit, so it stayed a little cool, you know. And so, and so you, so you originally started off selling these 168 cases out of your car. In an unrefrigerated storage unit, you do refrigerate all the wines. Yeah, we do. We, we do hold all of them in perfect storage temperature now. And uh, we have fulfillment centers uh, in multiple places around the country. And it allows us to um, ship 
you know, over 95% of our shipments in two days how, or less by ground. How'd you, how'd you go? Like, so you sold this wine and you about to buy more wine and sell yeah. more wine. Like how, how'd this become a real business? It seems like, it seems like a very hard thing to get going. Yeah. Well, gri- breaking into the distribution world is, is hard, um, in and of itself. We started it in 2007. And so our first full year was 2008 and the recession just hit. And so the first distributor we ever got in California had just dropped 60 brands. We were the only brand they picked up that following year at the end of the year. But for a year and a half, we were selling out of the back of our cars and we would come the next day and deliver it. So that was our relationship. So, so, and so it, you think because you had this personal relationship with them and then because it was at a charitable cause, it was an advantage? That was the only reason that I can imagine people were buying it. Our wine was you know, average at the time. It, we didn't have economies of scale. So it wasn't like a great deal. They were buying it for the cause. They were buying it for the purpose. They were buying it for our enthusiasm and our soul. So. And, 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 and now the wine, now the wine's winning awards and it's gotten a lot better. Yeah. We have over 20 wines that have 90 point ratings in our portfolio right now. Um, we have three coming out that are rated 97 to 99 points by Robert Parker, which is really exciting. Um, how much, and, how much do those cost if they were, like, um, th- those are uh hundred dollar plus bottles yeah. for sure. A, a couple of them are probably actually going to crack the $200 but, price but, point. But some of the nine, some of the nine plus point wines are also 20, 25 bucks. Yeah. We have wines on our site that are $25 retail that are 96 and 97. So how do you, right how now. do you make, how do you make good wine for only that much money? Like how's this, how's this business work? What's, so, tell us about the CD underbelly. What's actually happening here? Yeah. So the, um, one in Napa, we're in the epicenter of great wines, at least for the U S. And so the next wine is better than the next is better than the next. And that chase after that hundred point wine is kind of this goofy thing to some of us. Cause it's so subjective. So you want to create really memorable, great wines. And um, our brand promise starts at being able to bring that to people's doorsteps for $25 and under um, when they buy it by the case. And um, when we think about um, making great wines, it starts in the vineyards. And so grapes are really a, a commodity. So you can actually buy incredible grapes for a pretty reasonable price, even the best grapes. Um, where the real um, differentiation is made um, is after because you can only control so much in the vineyards the terroir here the sun the light the water um those are variables that so we're sitting you, in rutherford as part of napa right now the terroir is the earth yes and then water the sun this is, is, is it supposed to be one of the very best places for cow but you're, you're saying it's, even this is one of the very best places the grapes are not that expensive to buy yeah um they're more expensive than the average as you go throughout the rest of the state but relative to that bottle of wine generally the grapes are 10 to 15 percent of the cost um and then you have the processing and the winemaking and all the packaging and all of that stuff and then a lot of it comes down to the brand equity and how people connect with that brand and the greatest brands go beyond just providing somebody a really good wine they remind people of the place they remind people of the people they were with and so we say you know a good wine will remind you of the wine but a great wine will remind you of the place and the people you're with and if you can bring people a memory through the smell of wine through the taste of wine and bring them back to a place um, then you can do something that very few wines can do and so um, the other part of it is like creating great consistent wines uh year to year um that are your everyday drinker and then um creating extraordinary wines when you talk about those more expensive small supply wines how do you do that how do you create the extraordinary wines is it it, first you have to build relationships with the um 
farmers that farm the best vineyards here. And so that was one of the big, one of the hardest places when you talk about the underbelly, right? Um, one of the hardest things I did was creating trust and relationships with some of the greatest farmers in the Napa Valley. Cause there's a lot of people who are really passionate about growing the best grapes, but they're not marketers. They don't want to sell the wine. They just want to farm. And so you go and find them and, and you give them a house. Um, we're a very asset light business. So we own about 1% of our vineyards and we work with some of the best vineyard families we're, in we're the looking world. at the ones you own right here pretty yeah much, right, right here in yeah. rutherford we're at the rutherford bench um people like opus one robert mandavi to our south cake bread staglin they've made rutherford a really special place and people talk about the rutherford dust um that andre chelyachev brought to this valley and and that phrase really alludes to the kind of cocoa powder chocolatey finish that you get in a lot of these wines that are right here on the bench which is on the west side of highway 29 just at the base of the mayakama mountains and you get a lot of that fertile uh, silt coming down uh, the mountains um, and the rainwater and it washes through this property and out towards the middle of the valley out to the river so it is really the holy land for wine in the U.S. and because of that it's attracted some of the best winemakers from all over the world so there really is this network effect going on and then, and then you and you build relationships with the farmers get get access to the grapes you then build relationships with the people who are doing the next part or what um, yeah so um Early on, um, we were able to partner up with the Mandavi family and Rob Mandavi Jr., Robert Mandavi's grandson, the creator of Robert Mandavi and Opus One, and really, um, I think, the pioneer of our last generation who put Napa on the map uh, along with a few others. Rob um, would make our wines along with Tony Coltrane, their longtime family winemaker. We started getting to a scale where we really needed our own full-time winemaker that would just do our wines. And so we hired a woman named Mari uh, Wells Coyle, and uh, she's an extraordinary winemaker. She's the one who's made some of these um, incredible like rated wines and, and gotten these accolades. Rob's also worked with her on collaborations. And so we do all of our winemaking in-house, um, even though we outsource the majority of our farming. So we're very asset light, but then we control the processing from that point forward, even though we also borrow other people's wineries to continue to stay asset so light. Buy, so, buying, so buying good grapes is important. And then, and then you make sure you do the process yourself in order to get the 90 point plus points. Yep. You got to have a, a there's that's definitely the magic that the oak aging in the wine. So um, how long do you, how long do you age most though? If you're buying a twenty five dollar bottle, how long did that age for? Twenty five dollar bottles usually we're aging at like four to six months um, versus uh, some of the really complex, uh, extraordinary wines in our iconic collection reserve collection. The reds will be twenty two to sometimes thirty three months. Um, we have a new kosher wine that just came out that was aged thirty three months. We've got a a, a diamond uh, a red diamond um, uh, AVA from Washington, one of the um, best rated AVAs in general in the world. Um, and that is, uh, that's 30 months aged. And then our Fumé Blanc here um, is 10 months aged in New French Oak as a white wine. And so we'll age some of the nicer white wines 10 to 12 months. And, you'll, and then you'll age the wine and then you bottle it. Yeah, then you bottle it. Pretty cool looking bottles. This is one of your favorite white wines here, the Fumé Blanc. It is. It's one of my favorite white wines, actually. It's pretty good. Yeah, what's really special about these wines when they're estate grown is, um, you know, on the back, we point out the specific block that the wine comes from. So that little blue block that we highlight on the back, this aerial visual is right here. And so when you get um, this small production, we only make about... 500 to 600 cases of that a year, you'll actually zero in on the specific block 
uh, on the very specific vineyard um, that you made that wine. And it brings you back to that very specific place and very specific vintage year, where with um, the 20 to $25 wines, you're really looking for consistency. So there's a lot of great technology that um, the new world has come out with over the last couple of decades. And even though some of the old world turns their nose up on it, it allows us to um, create very, very consistent uh, wines year to year for that price point. Because a lot of people at that price point don't want it to change year to year with the weather and all of the other variables. They want, they want the same wine they really like. They want the same wine they really like. And so you can do technical analysis on it and measure the acidity and so the, the very, sugar. So the very high-end wines, it's like this is a 2016 versus a 2012. Whereas some of the other wines are just really good wines and people want the same one and, and you can just neutralize it. So it's the same thing every year. Yeah, or close enough cool. to it. Yeah, and actually um, people would think that the consistency would be higher if you source from the exact same block every year. But actually then the weather has a chance of affecting it a lot more, right? Are so, you doing blends for these to make it more consistent? They're taking that's from multiple right. places? Because you're, you're, uh, when you're talking about tens of thousands of cases of then volume. You can, well, then you can blend stuff so that, it's, so that way you get the average. Exactly. Yeah. And and you still want to source from the best region. So we source from Napa, Sonoma, the Central Coast, which are the three best regions of California. But because you're able to blend them together, you're able to have a lot more flexibility year to year and make a more consistent I remember wine. when you were first looking at doing a really beautiful place, you're looking in the Sierras or some other vineyards out there that are pretty good, but they're, you said they're not as good and they're not as popular, huh? Yeah, they um, they don't have the mystique that Napa has. Um, they're not known as the very best region. They're incredible growing areas, but what Napa's done really well is protect that brand and create a global brand here where it's known for the best agriculture and the best winemakers and the best so, brands. So you track the top talent, kind of, kind of like how tech centers track the top talent. That's right. Like People will uh, always challenge whether Silicon Valley really gets the better engineers, and certainly there's little pockets in Austin and New York and other places where you can compete. But at the end of the day, until the best engineering talent isn't going to Silicon Valley, um, so, so, it's still, still a really important place for everything. Exactly. And that's what Napa Valley is to the wine industry is what Silicon Valley is to the technology industry sense. in the Let, US. Let's step back a little bit from the wine process itself and talk a little bit more about cost centric commerce. This is something obviously you're one of the first successful companies in this area that's really focused on commerce focusing on a cause like, like why, why first of all why do you take up that approach what what inspired you to do that well I loved when I first saw in the grocery stores companies using causes to market their brand and creating alignment and a mutually beneficial relationship between their brand and some nonprofit where they would increase sales. And um, by doing so, they'd also donate a portion to that cause. I thought it was really cool and it actually spoke to me. I was a consumer that cared about that. But I also thought it was pretty gimmicky that it was, you know, temporary and it'd be a few weeks during October for breast cancer awareness month. And then by November, all the pink ribbons would be gone. And so the idea was like, build it into the brand year round, make it authentic, make it woven into the fabric of the brand. And it's kind of interesting, rather than giving Tiger Woods, you know, $10 million or whatever, you're giving that $10 million to a charity. And then, and then, and then hopefully getting consumers to support you for doing that because it's a better place where they want the money to be going. That's right. And I think with us, it's, um, it's not only inspiring our consumers, it's inspiring, um, us to be able to attract, uh, some of the best talent in the wine industry. It inspires us to, uh, attract like-minded investors who are really purpose-driven. Um, it's made us able to attract people like the Mandavi family who was really purpose-driven. So, 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 so it gives you, it's a cost under commerce because you're supporting a cause. Everyone wants the company to win. 
obviously I got involved as, as, as chairman in part because you're helping to support this company. It's going to win and it's going to help a lot of other people. Right? That's right. I, I think um, you said it best, actually, when you started getting involved. You were like, you know, I, I believe there's going to be a great ROI on every dollar invested and it'll return more than a dollar back into the community and in the form of impact. So that win-win of, of still um, being an IRR that, uh, that hits the spot uh, on top of it, being able to create much more than a dollar donated for a dollar invested, um, created that extra bonus. And, and I do think, um, having that purpose, you know, it, a really deep purpose will always more than outperform what you're investing into it. A perfect example is our first year, we only had enough to be able to donate $10,000. This was pre any outside financing. This was when my mom had given me 10 grand of equity and I had $75,000 on credit cards. And our the amount of passion and purpose that our team felt about that first $10,000 donated, like how quick does a startup spend $10,000 in today's world? But that um, that created that passion, that extra work and rigor around it. So, and, and I mean, how would you recommend other entrepreneurs, other builders think about their cause and how, how they can, how they can add cause to what they're doing? I think being really intentional and authentic about what is important to you and, and your company and the people at your company, um, the community of people who are going to buy your product, uh, and or support your service. Um, and then also taking a step back and saying, as a business, what do we have competitive advantages in? Um, what fits our business model, right? For us, wine train in the background i know the wine train passes right in front of our property that frontage on st helena highway um but i think if you are able to take a step back and and for us it was hey we have wine and wine brings people together and when they come together they're able to share uh, a cause that they're passionate about and people not only can buy the wine um and raise donations towards that cause they can also make a direct donation it's also about awareness and so um for us uh some of the causes that um, we serve are really important to our community of cause entrepreneurs their customers and the people that um are our, um, from our supply chain all the way to our customer, you know. Your support, well, when it's supply chain, for example, you support a lot of the farm workers' health here in Napa. That's exactly right. We, uh, for our iconic collection, which is our smallest production wine. So, for example, uh, Fume Blanc is um, in our iconic collection for white. And then our highest end small production um, red wines are Cabernets from Atlas Peak, Oakville, Rutherford, Howell Mountain, some of the best AVAs around here, which is American Viticultural Area. Um, all of those help donate to the local farm workers. We support a group called Olay Health, which, uh, uh, helps provide um, health care for 60% of the Napa Valley. So that's, farm a, that's a pretty neat idea. Case. A lot of people in their companies, maybe one of the things that the, they could do is they could support people supporting their supply chain or whatnot. That's maybe, exactly maybe, right. maybe Apple, instead of just like letting it be slaves in China, could support, for example, these people <laughs> so like in, in some way to be free or, or whatnot. That would be really nice of them. There's a few things Apple could probably work on to be a little more purpose driven um, beyond what they already do. Um, but I think for us, um, I mean, you're exactly right. Uh, recently, I was realizing we're giving out all these ho holiday grants and we were giving out grants for education. And right here on the property, um, we have a handful of people that are part of our hospitality team and work so hard. And they have um, children that are um, first generation going to college and uh, they're Mexican-American, um, which is, by the way, um, who powers the Napa Valley. It's literally and figuratively the people who have built this industry on their back. 
back here. And so um, I, are, I started are some, thinking are, about are some it of these is, families starting to thrive more. Like we're talking about we're talking about America as a whole. Like what's what's the experience right now? The Mexican families in, in Napa, they, as far as you know, I mean, they they really are from uh, the snapshot that uh, I get to see. And when I think about our our team here, just the idea that they're um, sending their kids to college and their kids are getting college education. And granted, you and I could talk about how important a college education will actually be going forward and how much of that is brand versus true education. But the idea of higher education um, and being the first in their family and their parents giving them that opportunity, they're only really one generation behind what you and I. How are the, how, how are the parents able to afford that as farm workers? Um, well, these these people are in hospitality, but um, as farm workers, like a lot of it comes through grants and a lot of it comes through the support of uh, the wineries around here. And so Napa is extremely charitable and uh, gives back a lot relative to the U.S. who relative to the rest of the world gives back a lot as corp, uh, in the corporations. Um, but here um, it is a big focus in addition to building a health clinic for our farm workers so that they could um, all get uh, quality health care. And we built a beautiful center in downtown uh, Napa for LA Health and we're part of that. Um, but on top of it, um, groups like us are starting to think this way and support um, the education of not only um, them, but also their future generation. How, how do you think about the duty of the corporation here? Because there's different points of view. Some people say if you have a good mission and then you just make profit and that's enough. And some people say that if there's people around your community who are suffering, it's your job as a corporation to go and figure out and solve those problems. And, and how, 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 do you, how do you approach this? Yeah. So I don't think that it's everybody's duty to have to um, donate to a specific nonprofit. There's other ways to give back to the community and to get involved. I do think it's everybody's duty to get involved in the community and, um, and help give back along the way, not just at the tail end. You know, you, um, back in the day, you used to make a lot of money in your lifetime and then you'd bequeath it to your kids and maybe to a university at the end of your life. And I really think you and I understand the time value of money and, um, donating and volunteering today, it compounds down the road or it should. And so when I think about it, it's really a progression and it should be at the heart of a business from the very beginning, even if it's really small Just and, to be involved in your community. Yeah. To be involved in, in your community and, and returning value to, um, the, to your customers beyond, um, just providing your product and service. Is, it, is, so it, is this something that, that is this something that was an American culture that's gone away a little bit more recently? Is it trying to come back right now? How, how do you see that? I feel like it's actually grown quite a bit. So there's this been this progression of corporate philanthropy, um, which really started um, in the late 1800s and through the first half of 1900s. And then you saw this uh, progression to cause-related marketing. And American Express was really the first ones to trademark that phrase and term it. And they, they actually um, re uh, renovated and rebuilt the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it was a Statue of Liberty restoration project through every new credit card sign up and a penny of every transaction, they were able to finally fund the restoration of when, one of when, our when greatest was that? pieces. That was in the um, late 1970s um, and early early 80s was when the campaign started. A guy named Jerry Welsh, who um, I, I came into contact with, was uh, their head of... of um, he must have worked for Jim Robinson the third of the time. He then. worked like, for Jim Robinson, uh, who's your buddy. And I think Jim Robinson was the guy who introduced us. And he was a great thinker uh, at that time. The idea that that, um, you would be able to market this cause and also market the business while doing it. And it was this win, win, win. But um, I think it, 
it was and it still is this great idea but i think now going beyond it and kind of and again weaving it into um your company culture um really making it part of your company's dna from the beginning versus a temporary marketing campaign is this next progression and i think we have more transparency into businesses than we used to so we kind of get to see the people behind it and i think people have that expectation at so, least on so, the consumer so transparency side. creates some kind of accountability basically that's exactly right it is yeah. it is interesting because because i guess you want the top talent's going to want to work for places that inspire them and what they're doing for the community the customers are going to want it the suppliers are going to want it right i mean when i think about some of your greatest companies they're incredibly purpose-driven and the idea of solving the world's biggest challenges through these entrepreneurial solutions for any great entrepreneur for the best engineers they want to solve these big challenges together and um i think being purpose-driven um is is something that is always going to create out sized returns for what you put into it and you don't do it just for that but it's certainly one of the good outcomes of it it, it certainly made it i mean when any business including one hope had times when it was when it wasn't working as well had times when when it had to be saved it probably made made people more likely to help you save it when it needed to be saved that they did care about what it stood for huh i don't know joe it's always been up and to the right for us just <laughs> nice smooth path like uh you know like all startups right <laughs> like all startups yeah from the outside it looks easy it always looks uh if if you're a really great brand um, it always looks bigger than it actually is. And it always looks easier than it is. And, uh, and you have to make it that way. You, you don't want to drag your customers through the bumpy stuff. You don't you want, want them to have to see the challenges. Well, right exactly. now the brand honestly is very strong and you honestly yeah. are growing quickly. What, a, you know, a lot of people right now are pessimistic about the country. Uh, you're obviously part of building something really successful and helping a lot of people. So you must have a lot of optimism around you. What would you say to those who are pessimistic and who are worried about America? You know, I, I've never found that um, an abundance of pessimism has uh, created the greatest things in this country. Um, and the opposite I have found quite true. Abundance of optimism um, can create great things. I mean, we have hope in our brand name, right? One hope. One is about uniting people and bringing them together. And hope um, is our product. You know, I used to think about our service being wine tastings, but our service is actually bringing people together around the table to drink wine and have food and create memories. And our product, I used to think about being wine, but our product's really hope. And so when I think about um, these companies, if, if you want to have a chance uh, it's, it's hard, even if you are an optimist, but if you're a pessimist, there's a very, very small chance you're ever going to make it. And why would you be a pessimist? We're living in the greatest time, at least a standard of living, um, that we ever have across the world. Um, people have better lives than they've ever had. Um, we took a little dip there in life expectancy for a little half a micro generation, but we're on the way to where people are expected to live to like 150 that are being born now. Um, and, uh, if, if people, people actually look at where we've come relative to where we are, it's pretty obvious that we're living in this great, amazing time. Um, and even if you just zoom down on our company, right, this idea that we're democratizing the opportunity to get in the wine industry, when have uh, you ever had a, a fair market in the wine industry? Um, and that's just one example of free markets uh, finally starting to come into play, decentralization coming into play. Um, and I think actually governments, um, you know, overall um, are are doing a good job in the most industrialized and progressed nations. Um, and they're, they're, uh, they're letting more players in and, and making it so the big guys can't stop the little guys as much. I think so. And I think we have people uh, like you and friends of ours that are fighting for the little guys as big guys. And you didn't used to see that happen. You used to 
to see the big guys get big and then say, okay, now I'm going to protect what I have and cut everybody else out. And, and Napa was a little bit that way. Um, there are some old guard people here who are like, not we don't want wa- the competition. Not you know? everyone wanted you to build this winery. That's, this was a, t- a tough thing to get done. Exactly. Cause you don't want somebody building the coolest new thing right across the, guy, the street. The guy, the guy, you, the guy across know? the street wasn't so happy with this. <laughs> I don't think, he, I, I don't think so. And, I, but, but at the end of the day, the family who uh, made Napa what it was in the last generation. They've been very helpful. They've been the, very the helpful. The Mandavis want so, to see more people like you. Yeah, the Mandavis, the Staglins have been great to us. The Renteria family, who's one of the great farming families and has their own great brands. And so we've been lucky enough to have some of the old guard players say, here, let me help you in. Let me put my arm around you and welcome you into this community. And I'm going to make sure that I do that for the next guys coming along too, because I think that's what um, Legacy is about. It's not just about hoarding it all to your brand. It's about thinking about the um, the entire community rising together and being one of the great players amongst them. But we can all win, you know, when we take that mentality. Jake, how can people support One Hope? Thanks for asking, Joe. Uh, OneHopeWine.com. Uh, you can go there and buy wines. You can sign up for our wine club. You get free shipping um, on four or more bottles. And um, also, we have this beautiful, beautiful winery in the heart of Napa Valley. Um, it's private to a collective of people. We're, we call it the 2020 Collective. It's ultimately going to be 2,000 people doing 20 significant acts of hope together each year, like building a school, bringing clean drinking water to a community, things like that. And um, you can apply for that on one hopewine.com as well look for 2020 collective and so those are the two main ways if uh you're uh, anybody out there who's interested in getting in the wine uh, industry and getting a wine education and getting um you know access to inventory and technology and the ability to start your own business for a very small uh amount um you can join us as well join our community uh of over 10,000 women who are sharing wine and giving hope so go to onehopewine.com and the journey begins there awesome thanks jake thank Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it, buddy.